is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. Author and hometown Detroiter Steve Luxenberg is back in town promoting his book, Separate, about the human stories behind the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision. That is the ruling that enshrined the idea of separate but equal in American law until the mid-20th century. Luxembourg is in Detroit today at the Main Branch Library on Woodward at 6 p.m., and he will be speaking tomorrow in Livonia and Ann Arbor. Steve Luxembourg, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Glad yeah. to be back in Detroit. Yeah, it's a great to have you here. Um, uh, so you joined the show in February, around the time that this book came out, and we talked a lot about the stories that you include in it about Plessy versus Ferguson, personal kinds of stories about the people who were involved. Um, I want you to remind our listeners about the approach you took toward writing this book, but you also walked into the studio today with a really appropriate segue to that conversation based on what we were just talking about, which is that it's election day here in Southeast Michigan. There is a part of your book that deals with a really contentious election in 1868. Yeah, so race, I think, is our national conversation. We're either talking about it or we're avoiding talking about it. Or not talking about it, right. (laughs) And that was true in spades in the 19th century uh, when the racial conversation was bold and bald. I'll give you an example. Election Day, 1868. On the ballot was a new Michigan constitution that had a clause that would have given voting rights to black men, not black women, but black men. They called it universal suffrage, but it wasn't universal. This was right after the Civil War, so you had the liberation of slaves in the South. But in Michigan, that ballot uh, issue went down to defeat. And the next day, in the free press, the headline was, Michigan revolutionized. The new constitution overwhelmingly defeated. Michigan believes this is a white man's government. Mm, That was the context, and that was the kind of language used in the 19th century. Yeah, and it was the kind of language used frequently by the Free Press, which today is known as the more liberal paper here in Detroit, but was founded in uh, the 19th century and as an anti-abolitionist uh, uh, sheet. I mean, it was it was founded by people who were trying to discourage the North from participating in a war against uh, against slavery. And that's well, in newspapers in the 19th century, Steve, as you know, were were very partisan, uh, and they had very little reporting in it. Partisan to the point of talking about their favored candidates, but not talking very much about what they were those candidates might be saying. Mm-hmm. The Free Press was the paper of the Democratic Party. It was associated with the Democrats. The other paper associated with the Republican Party, which was the new party, the anti-slavery party, founded right here in Michigan in 1854 in Jackson. In Jackson, right. Uh, some Wisconsin people would dispute that, but I think most people say it was founded in, in Jackson. Uh, and uh, that was the Tribune. The, the Detroit Tribune was the paper associated with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about uh, your book, which we've talked about before uh, on the program. But again, remind listeners about this approach you take toward telling this story. It's not a conventional history book narrative. Uh, it, it, it tells the story through the people who were involved in it. So I'm not a constitutional scholar or a legal historian. I wanted to tell the story as as a human story of the people who were caught up in the case. And the book has a kind of double narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, it has the story of the justices who 
uh, decide the case. It's a seven-to-one case in 1896 that we associate with the phrase separate but equal, although those words do not appear in the majority decision. And, it, and one of those justices is a Michigan guy. He was born in New England, but he came to Detroit as a young man in 1859. He stays here until he's appointed to the court in 1890. The other justice is a Kentuckian. He's the only dissenter in the case. And amazingly enough, he has this arc from being a slaveholder's son, a pro-slavery candidate, and then he ends up being uh, the writer of the dissent that made him famous that promotes equal rights. Uh, but you can't have legal cases without people who caused that case to come to the courts. And those are the resistors, the mm-hmm. black men and women who resist separation throughout the 19th century, including the group in New Orleans, this mixed race, largely French-speaking Creoles of color uh, who include Homer Plessy. And that's my approach. But to me, this, the story is a story of our racial history, our racial injustice. Uh, racial justice in, in America has never come swiftly or easily. And in my book touring, uh, which has been going on since February, I've had some, some of the most amazing conversation with people of color, people who are white, as they react to the book. And their reactions are evidence of our racial divide. Yeah. Uh, people of color who have grown up in families, they, they, they react so negatively to statements like that of Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who wants to place the question of reparations back into a period where he says that, the conversation should end with slavery, mm-hmm. and that was 150 years ago. Why are we talking about this? People of color say, what are you talking about? After slavery, there was convict labor and peonage in the South as people were pressed into uh, service, quote-unquote, because they couldn't pay a simple fine, and then they were you know, forced into labor. Then there's the Jim Crow period in the 20th century, the, the numbers of people who have been denied opportunities is legion, and it continues to this day. And yeah. so there's just such a divide over that. And, of course, people who are white look at that and say, well, I, my, I had nothing to do with that. That was something that happened a long time ago. But that's why it's so difficult to talk about race, because the people come to the conversation with such different feelings. People of color... They grow up in families where these stories are told today. They're not ancient history. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder if when you are going around and talking about this book, whether you see that there is opportunity for movement on on these issues. In other words, you, you describe really clearly the two poles that uh, black Americans and many white Americans sit on on these issues. But I would imagine that sometimes they're both showing up for your talks. Do you get them to to kind of dialogue about this in a different oh, way? Oh, I think they, they are able to commit to dialogue on their own. But yeah. one of the nights that I, I spoke in, in Vermont, um, one of the members of the audience was a teacher, and he said, here's progress. My students don't see race. My eighth grade students don't see race. And then another teacher in the audience said, well, my seventh grade students do see race. And so they had that conversation. And I do think that young, at least when I was growing up, I went to Henry Ford High School out in the northwest corner. Mm-hmm. Um, the school at that time was about 75% white. The, the basketball team that I played on, I wasn't one of the stars, uh, that I played on was about 50-50. And uh, the, the, th- those conversations I had on that basketball court have stayed with me n- until today. 
Uh, but th- those two teachers debated whether or not their students, why, why are you saying one thing? Why are you saying another? At another talk that I went to in Connecticut, a, a black woman um, took the unusual position that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Hmm. But she didn't have the usual statement, which is a lot of white people in the South would say. Um, she, what she said was, the Northerners didn't care about the people who were enslaved. They just cared about the principle of slavery. Hmm. And so she was saying, don't think of yourself as a humanitarian, you people from the North. You didn't care about sla- the <laughs> right. slaves. This was not about black liberation as much as it was about... We don't uh, want to be dragged into your economic together. system. Sure, is, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my guest is Steve Luxenberg. He's a journalist and author of the book Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. Uh, he is in Detroit uh, for uh, several book talks. He is today at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library main branch. Tomorrow he will be in Livonia from 11.45 to 12.45 at Schoolcraft College. And tomorrow he will be in Ann Arbor at 7 p.m. at the Ann Arbor District Library, uh, the downtown library there. Uh, We are talking about his book and talking about race in America, both back in the 19th century as well as today. What are the connections between the things that happened then and the things that we are trying to deal with now. What kind of conversations about race do you have? Do you talk about race in your daily life? How do those conversations go? And what kinds of conversations do you have with your kids about race? A really critical question. What are you telling your children about race, both in history in the United States and in the present? Also, uh, do you see overall race relations changing for us as individuals and as a society right now. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, I want to talk about, I want to have you talk about your recent experience talking about this case and the book in Louisiana. So I had the amazing experience, truly amazing, of going to the Louisiana Book Festival. And the place they put me to have my book talk was the Louisiana House of Representatives. (laughs) So in the chamber, it wasn't the same chamber because there's been a new capitol built since the Plessy case uh, was decided. The the Plessy case is about a Louisiana law, Mm -hmm. a law that mandated equal, quote, equal but separate accommodations for white and colored passengers, end quote. Uh, So I was standing in the same chamber where the previous House had passed this legislation. Of course, it was passed by the Senate as well. And that gave rise to, uh, so this is a special law. It it did something that laws rarely do. It criminalized riding on a railroad. If you sat in the wrong car, you could be charged with uh, a crime. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Plessy team was bringing a test case, as they, as they said. They used that phrase in 1890, a test case to challenge this law. Mm. Uh, so I'm standing in the House of Representatives, and of course there was the electronic roll call behind me, and I, I teased the audience and said that after my talk, you can have a roll call vote on whether you like my talk or not. <laughs> but of course the buttons, the buttons didn't work. The buttons didn't work, right? Uh, that's one of the things that I think is really fascinating, not just about your book, but about our history in this country is that you're able to go and kind of stand in spaces that take you back to these debates 
in the 19th century, uh, and they are all over the country. They are not just in the South, which I think a lot of people believe they are. We have one here in the city of Detroit that I think of frequently, which is the gravesite of Henry Billings Brown, which is in Elmwood Cemetery, a place that I've actually gone and, and, and looked at. He's one of the justices who decided uh, the, Plessy, the Plessy decision, and he's a big part of your book. Yeah, so most people would not know the, t- the name today, Henry Billings Brown. Uh, as I said, he came here in 1859. He went on the court in 1890. He was a federal, federal judge here from 1875 until 1890. Uh, and he ends up writing the Plessy decision. And if you were to look at his resume and you were to make a bet, you would say, well, the guy from New England who grew up in an abolitionist neck of the woods, he's probably in the dissent on Plessy. No, he writes the majority decision. And John Marshall Harlan, the Kentuckian, who was a slaveholder's son and a pro-slavery candidate for Congress, you would have predicted that he would be writing the majority decision. But instead, he ends up as the dissenter, and mm-hmm. he writes this ringing dissent that makes him famous, that the, that the uh, court in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, uh, they, they basically take Harlan's side. So in the days after the ruling, the New York Times had a headline that I'm sure went over the head of most of its readers, but they, the headline was uh, on the editorial, Justice Harlan concurring mm. with the Brown decision. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that, that as a writer, you try to get in the heads of people. You try to understand how do they see the world. There's no point in me writing a book about how I see the world in the 19th century. So one of the most vivid examples, I would say, is Frederick Douglass. When you look at the words of Frederick Douglass, he, he spoke to the Republican National Convention, the first time he spoke to a national convention in 1876. And his words are are so important. What he said is, he was, was, listen to the sarcasm. He said, you say, you Republicans, that you have liberated us, and you have, and I thank you for that. You say you have enfranchised us, and you have, and I thank you for that. But what is your liberation if you don't make good on the promises in your constitution, your laws, And what Douglas was trying to say is, I didn't get a chance to vote for these things. I didn't get a chance to write these amendments that are giving me equal rights. So it's your obligation to make good on your promises. And I think that's the way the most famous black man in America in the 19th century saw the situation in 1876. Yeah. And that's the way I tell the story. Yeah. It's through stories like that. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Paula in Imlay City. Paula, welcome to the show. Hey, hey Stephen. Thanks. Hey. Thanks for putting me on. Sure. Um, your talk is very interesting. I was a native Detroiter. I grew up on the northwest side also. Had a brother who attended Henry Ford High School, actually. Um, what year, Paula? Was... Uh, he was 1986, I believe. Okay. So a few years after so me, I'm, years a, I'm an old guy. <laughs> uh, not so old. <laughs> we were all part of the busing initiative. We lived on the northwest side. We were taken to schools where we were exposed to different cultures. Um, it was a great experience for all of us. My family stayed in Detroit through the 90s. Um, eventually, I raised my kids and moved out for various jobs, and my daughters were exposed to the city of Detroit and all the cultural events as much as I could possibly do for them. 
Um, my eldest has chosen to move back to Southwest. She's been in Detroit now for 12 years and watched a lot of development. And while the development is incredibly exciting, in some ways it's very egregious because the very things that make Detroit unique, the cultural opportunities, the various races that are down there, um, are being pushed again to the margins because we're not offering economic opportunities for the people who have stayed through the worst of the city's history. Mm. Hmm. Paula, you're absolutely right about that, and that's uh, it, one of the more complicated and difficult narratives that's unfolding uh, in Detroit today. I really appreciate the call and, and the comments, and you're connecting this conversation uh, to that. Uh, Steve, how much do you keep up with what's going on here? You know, it's hard not to keep up with it yeah. because people ask me <laughs> about the, the resurgence of Detroit. Uh-huh. I'm so glad they asked me that question that way because— when I was writing my first book, which was a kind of investigative memoir of a family secret that my mom kept, mm-hmm. the book is fairly well known in Detroit, it's called mm-hmm. Annie's Ghost, mm-hmm. everybody was giving me sort of lamentations for the fact that I grew up in Detroit uh, because they saw it. I think that, the, that part of the problem with our brethren in the press is that they never saw any of the good parts of Detroit in, in the 90s and the early 2000s. But you know, all this development that's going on, some of the national press that Detroit is getting, uh, it, it, as a Detroiter, how can you not be glad about the resurgence? Hmm. Hmm. And of course, there's met, there are many more miles to go. I don't want it, it's yeah. easy to make a glib, right? But but you know, but I there's mean, something happening here. There's a vibe. You know, it's something I also experienced when I lived on the East Coast, and and you've spent most of your adult life, I think, uh, elsewhere. Uh, yeah, in, in Baltimore in, as a reporter, and then in Washington. And, yeah, right. That's how we know each other is yes. from uh, Baltimore. Um, but there is this curiosity about Detroit and a need I think people have sometimes to to differentiate their own city and the own their own struggles from what they see as what's going on in Detroit. I mean, we're kind of like the the, the measuring stick, I guess, that some people use to try to decide what what their city is 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 experiencing. Well, there's no question. When I was growing up, uh, white flight was in full, full bloom uh, as uh, after the civil unrest in ni- 1967, you know, white residents of Detroit fled in, in droves. Um, and I was 16 years old when, when, that, uh, mm. when 1967, uh, the civil unrest happened. Uh, and I could see the smoke billowing up from downtown from my uh, house in, uh, in, uh, on, on Houghton and Fargo is the area where I grew up on the northwest side. Uh, so it was, race has always been a part of my consciousness. How could it not be? Uh, I think it's a part of most Americans' consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I, um, when I left Detroit, I, I went to another city where race is a very much a part of the city's fabric, which is Baltimore. Uh, I now no longer have to tell people where I'm from and explain because I now can just say I'm from the rat-infested, rodent-infested city of <laughs> District, Baltimore, right. That's which is right. what President Trump said in his tweet. So yeah. I thank you for that, for that President Trump. <laughs> you helped right. me out. That's right. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Tom in Northwest yeah. Detroit. Hey, you Tom. know what? I remember when we were kids, um, we, went, we were going for a trip to visit my grandmother in Florida, and we stopped in around about Kentucky. 
and it was one of these little roadside diners. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm hungry. I mean, I'm with like, whatever, ten, nine years old, and I'm running towards this restaurant. My mother, she grabbed me. She said, "You can't go in there." I said, "Why not?" And she pointed to the sign. Hmm. Said, "Whites only." And I saw the I saw the water fountain. But you know, but in terms of other than that, in terms of race, me being, you know with some angry, you know, group of white folks. Uh, no. I mean, the school I went to, I went to Blessed Sacrament, and I went to Detroit Cathedral, which were right next to one another over on Belmont, which are no longer there. I went to school with the world. I didn't see me in there all day. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this, in terms of racial relations, I really believe they're getting better. I just think that what happened was when we got this deplorable number 45 who's in office now, his kin who were, you know, uh, somewhere uh, off in a dark cave, they came out. They've always been there, okay? But they came out, and they showed them ugly selves. And But I believe that, you know, there are more people like me, Steve, and you, uh, the, I mean, the, the guests, than there are those people. And also I'll say this. Thank you for saying what you said about Detroit. They don't see the good side. I've been here. I'm, I think I'm about three years older than you are. I got here. We came here, and I was born in '47. Came to Detroit in '53, and I saw Detroit go from the good to the bad to the not so good looking. <laughs> but she's getting better day by day. You know, it's just little increments. But you know, I'm I'm satisfied with what I'm seeing. But but race. It's not something that I rake up with, you know, okay, I look in the mirror, okay, I'm a black man, okay, but that's not prominent, that's not ever present on, my, present on my mind. I mean, you know, I'm a person, first of all, mm. as some folks say, I'm a child of God, and you know what, we put, a leg, we put our pants on one leg at a time, if you cut me, I bleed red, just like they would. So, you know, we've got more in common than we have Mm. not in common. Mm. Tom, I appreciate the call and the sentiments and, of course, the memories of uh, growing up here in Detroit and of traveling in the South at a time when African-Americans could not do so freely. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Steve Luxenberg, and we will continue with your calls as well. Jan in Detroit, Mark in Redford, we'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Steve Luxenberg, a journalist and author of the book Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. He is in town for several events where he will be talking about his book. That's today at 6 p.m., at the Detroit Public Library main branch. Tomorrow he will be in Livonia at Schoolcraft College at 11.45 a.m. And tomorrow night at 7 p.m. he'll be in Ann Arbor 
at the Ann Arbor District Library, their downtown library. We're talking now about the idea of conversations about race, the idea of how segregation in the 19th century, ordered by the Supreme Court or upheld by the Supreme Court, how has influenced American life since then, including today in 2019. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what kinds of conversations about race are you having? Do you think about race in your daily life? And how do those conversations that you have with people about race go? Are they comfortable? Are they uncomfortable? Do you find yourself having to walk away from conversations perhaps because of disagreements about race? Also, what kinds of conversations do you have with your kids about race? A really critical question. How we teach our children to see difference in a racial context. Also, do you see overall race relations changing for us as individuals and as a society? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's uh, go to Jan in Detroit. Jan, what's on your mind? Hi, uh, I'm an Allen Park High 86 high school graduate, 1990 Albion College school teacher. Hmm. First and foremost, I lived in New York City on and off since 1992. I raised my daughter in Los Angeles. She's 23 years old. When we talk about racism, we initially talk about how and why people are racist. Mm-hmm. I've made it very clear to her since her childhood that at once she got to 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, America breeds racism like there's no tomorrow, and we need to get real with that fact. Mm-hmm. So and- we also need to acknowledge that if you grow up in Detroit in the 70s, because I'm 51 years old, and you sit there and watch the news every day, and every day on the lead story is a black person committing a heinous crime, you start to wonder why until you grow up and realize what Detroit made of its inner cities, its education, and its care for black people. I also, lastly, was a teacher in South Central Los Angeles under a contract at John Muir Middle School in 1999. Mm-hmm. Seventh graders, coached some basketball, two kids shot and killed during school hours on school property. This mm-hmm. transcends far beyond the conversation of race. So we have to look at how and why we got here. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, Jan, I really appreciate the call uh, and the thoughts. Um, Steve Luxenberg, this idea, again, of trying to root the current discussions in that history as a way of making them true and making them honest. I mean, I, I, That's one of the difficulties I think we have. And I think what Jan is getting at there is that I guess we need, we need more of it. Well, I think that the... Uh you know, Plessy wasn't a landmark case when it was announced. It didn't become a landmark until the Supreme Court kept, kept citing it right. as a precedent. Uh, and one of the difficult things that I think we can talk about is, you know, we, we want to uh, respect settled precedent in the Supreme Court. And Susan Collins uh, said she became comfortable with Kavanaugh as a candidate because he told her that Roe v. Wade was settled precedent. So let's do a little thought experiment. What if uh, there was a Supreme Court nominee who said in 1950 that Plessy was a settled precedent Mm -hmm. and opposed overturning it because, well, it was settled precedent? Right. Um, Would we have felt comfortable with that? Right. I mean, it's one of the arguments that people have about Supreme Court decision making is how strongly do you have to respect 
precedent. And and of course, um, Plessy is seen in in any court discussion as the worst, perhaps, example of precedent and and yeah, you know the, perhaps it's a, second only to Dred Scott Dred in Scott, right. fifty-seven, which said that. People of color could, not could be citizens, never be citizens. Never be citizens. Right. And that was overturned by a constitutional amendment, right. which the 14th Amendment makes very clear that everyone, no matter what your race is, born in the U.S. is a citizen. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, that idea that you have to stick by what your predecessors did on the court is is one of the stickier propositions. And, and there's also a lot of, I think, uh, subterfuge that goes into the way people talk about precedent today. I think Brett Kavanaugh is saying something very specific when he says he will respect precedent. He doesn't, he's not saying that he won't overturn it. Uh, and I think we'll see pretty quickly uh, how that will, how that will play out. Uh, Jan, I appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Mark in Redford. Mark, you're up next. Yes, hello, Steve and Steve. Uh-huh. Hey. hey I'm, uh, I'm also an author on this topic that we're discussing this morning. And uh, Mr. Luxembourg writes of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson as being uh, disenfranchising. And that disenfranchisement continues today. Um, a topic that's uh, sensitive to me is, um, is uh, public transit in southeast Michigan. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough of that in which to get people out to the northern suburbs, for example, or to expand the service in general. Um, and that, in fact, is uh, disenfranchising. I mean, public transit is getting better, but it needs to be more inclusive of people, for example, that work the afternoon shift mm-hmm. and just simply want to go to work and then come home um, in the afternoon, yeah. I mean, in the evening. Yeah. And uh, Go ahead, Mark. Like Mr. Luxembourg, I grew up in uh, northwest Detroit, went to uh, Henry Ford High School. And <laughs> a lot of Henry Forders calling the program today. What year were you there, Mark? I, I graduated in 1973. Okay. Uh, so and you were in my brother's class. <laughs> Je- I, think I, know, I think I know him. Jeff Luxembourg. I think he's in our yearbook. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope he is, unless somebody's airbrushed him out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I went off to Vietnam after that, but... Um, Thankfully, I returned home safe. Yeah, we're but, thankful, too. Uh, this business of uh, public transit, as I said, is kind of a hallmark. Yeah, you know, Mark, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, number one, it's something that we've been struggling with here for my entire life, uh, almost five decades. And it does have important racial dimensions that we don't always talk about. Uh, When people say, for instance, that they don't want to pay for, quote unquote, other people uh, to be able to get around, often what they're thinking of or what they're talking about is people of another race. Uh, When you see communities around southeast Michigan opt out of the transit system that we have, uh, often it's about trying to keep people from other communities out of their community Uh, And that's about race. And uh, not frequently enough, I think, do we connect the dots there and talk about how uh, race is influencing that conversation and the decisions that we're making and is one of the primary reasons, I think, that we just have not been able uh, to solve that that issue. You know, transit is such a complicated issue in this city because the car companies, uh, far beyond my expertise, uh, we have a wonderful system of highways. 
But there's a reason why we have that highway, those highways, because it helps want us people to buy cars, drive, drive cars. <laughs> uh, but if you're unable to afford a car or the insurance to have a car, you're going to need public transit in Baltimore, where Steve and I have worked and lived. Uh, there was an entire neighborhood that was going to be decimated by a highway, mm-hmm. and, and there was an organized opposition. It was a black neighborhood. And that uh, and that uh, highway was not built fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stops in the middle of the city. Right, right and we, today. We, in the, <laughs> at the Baltimore Sun, we call it the highway to nowhere. <laughs> right, there's literally a wall at the end of the freeway, and you got to get off. Um, but but that's a, another city that uh, also. You know, traveling overseas, uh, it's amazing how well uh, used public transport is when it's both affordable and extensive. Yeah. Uh, in, in the UK, people of all races are on the buses. It's not just a system for one color or another. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments, Mark. Let's go to Delphine and Warren. Delphine, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Hello there. Hi, Hi Delphine. You? Go ahead. I am good. And I want to give a call out on a positive note, for I'm an old East Sider, graduated <laughs> from Northeastern, okay, 1949. Wow. You mentioned Stephen about what you tell your kids. You just don't tell your kids. You show your kids. Mm. We didn't eat grapes or lettuce. You take your kids to hear Caesar Chavez. Mm. I was one of the first volunteers for Focus Hope. We went to the Focus Hope walks. And so you show them, and then I see them. I'm amazed what even my youngest daughter remembers about those times, and she teaches her grandchildren. So that's how we do it. We support one another, and we keep it positive at all times. And thank you for your writing, sir. Yeah. Thank you, Delphi. Yeah, no, thank, thank you very much for calling in. Uh, let's go to Ricardo in Trenton. Ricardo, Hello? welcome to the show. Yeah, go ahead. I'm here. Mm-hmm. I wanted to express some opinions, and I don't uh, paint a whole ethnic group as one. So I was born not far from, I'm sorry, I came to Detroit not far from Tiger Stadium and uh, Depot when Detroit was arriving in 1953 hmm. i went to an all-white catholic school no blacks at all uh sprinkling of hispanics maybe eight or nine and that included six from my family the thing is that even now at 76 years of age when i travel i-75 down to florida south carolina i do not get off the highway except for gas hmm. and it better be well lit um, because I had some situations back in the middle 60s where we were down there and confronted with, you people think you can come here and use that? That's not money. Talking about traveler's checks. Hmm. I was here during the uh, riots in 67, um, moved to the outer skirts of Detroit, and finally ended up downriver Detroit. It is endemic in our society, the USA, that the racial hatred is inbred at home. Mm. I agree with the lady who just got off of there. You have to teach your kids, but even that does not guarantee that they will not be racist and or think of other uh, groups of people 
as being lesser than you. Yeah, Ricardo, it, I appreciate the ahead. I appreciate the call and the comments, and I really uh, am moved by the fact that the things that you experienced in the 1960s driving through the South still influence the way you think about that today. I mean, I think there's a very powerful. Uh, idea. Okay, Steve Luxemburg, great to have you here on Detroit Great today. to be here. And uh, you can catch up with Steve today at 6 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library Main Branch, tomorrow in Livonia at Schoolcraft College at 11.45 a.m., and tomorrow in Ann Arbor at 7 p.m. at the Ann Arbor District Library, the downtown library. All right, come back tomorrow, and we're going to talk about state lawmakers who are looking at ways to make it easier for people to clear their criminal records. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.